It's time to hear what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly at the multiplexes and at the art house. Warehouse, farmhouse, hen house, outhouse, or doghouse in that area. You'll also hear about new and old films on Blu-ray and on DVD. Plus, you'll hear all the latest Hollywood gossip. I don't care! Okay, maybe not the latter, but it is time for film sociology with WFYI's film guru. Kaiser Shizzy! No, that's Matthew Sosi. It's such a fine line between stupid and, and clever, yes. Let's see how thin the line is. Here's your host, Matthew Sosi. Hello there, film lovers. Welcome to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD2 The Point and WFYI.org. If you have a question or a comment, you can email me at msocey, that's M-S-O-C-E-Y, at WFYI.org. I'm also on Facebook, also on Twitter, at Matthew Sosey. The show is available as a podcast. It's also available on iTunes. And we have a blog, which someday will be updated at filmsociology.tumblr.com. Uh, it's a chock full of uh, film sociology public radio goodness today. This this might be the epitome of what film sociology is all about. Um, there's a new film that I'll be discussing in a little bit, and and on the second half of the show, uh, I uh, you'll hear an interview I did recently with writer Dan Epstein, who uh, he he wrote an article for Rolling Stone about a spaghetti western about a blind gunfighter that stars Ringo Starr. That's what we cover here at Film Sociology. And helping me out, and also we're going to be discussing cinematic mansplaining. I had to have a female in the studio because I'm not going to just do mansplaining on my own. But I was so glad that you explained to me what mansplaining <laughs> is. I, I did not do that, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and uh, joining me in studio is uh, local actress Erica Barker, who, who this year gets the Indie Stage Award for Mom of the Year. Oh, yes. To Thank go you. from uh, Hamlet and then Equus. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a good double feature. <laughs> How you doing? Great. How about you? Uh, well, I'm better now. And, of course, if, for those who don't know, Erica oozes pop culture. It's it's really fantastic. It's one of her most endearing traits. As long as it's older pop culture. I'll give you an example. Chief? McLeod. I love you. <laughs> I do that with my child. I can't even do this with my own wife. So she's, she's anyway, she won't uh, take the bait that is dad's pop culture. Anyway, let's move on. Um, we'll get to that in a little bit. But first, uh, opening in theaters this weekend is the new film from uh, two-time Best Director winner, Ang Lee. And uh, I remember seeing the promos for this, and I couldn't believe he was doing it. And I probably should have hit myself because that's not entirely the case. He is capable of doing something like this film, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk. Great title. Uh, this is How well. How long was it? <laughs> thank you, matinee girl. <laughs> no, we're not doing Art Fern here. Anyway, but this is this is a story about a, a 19-year-old soldier in a, uh, who became an in, in a, uh, internet superstar by saving one of his fellow soldiers during combat in Iraq. And it's what happens when Billy and his fellow soldiers are going to be a part of a halftime show, which, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, it's so not the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> so not the Cowboys. It's a big stadium in Dallas, but it's so not the Cowboys. It's kind of like the Any Given Sunday fake NFL teams. Yeah, so not the Cowboys. Steve Martin is so not playing Jerry Jones. <laughs> the cheerleaders are so not the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. They just dress similarly. Um, 
anyway, that's a side thing. But uh, but it's basically the what happens with these soldiers as they're preparing to be a part of a halftime show, and it splices in with what happened to them in Iraq that caused them to arrive here. And uh, the film kind of rides the line a little bit of satire on is how much... Uh, how much bureaucratic red tape maybe happens in it's it's tougher during a football game than it is actually in real life combat. Um, I'm intrigued to hear soldiers see uh, what what they think of this film. I think it rides the line of of good taste in that case, and the fact that sometimes it's more difficult to walk through a stadium than it is during uh, during open uh, an open uh, combat zone. Um, the young man pl- young man playing Billy Lynn is an up and comer named uh, Joel Alwyn. This is his first film. Solid performance. Doesn't rely too much on the aw shucks nineteen uh, year old boy next door aspect to the story. It also helps that he's surrounded by a really s- decent bench who, for the most part, don't get a whole lot to do. Uh, Garrett Hudlund is pretty good as a sergeant. Uh, Kristen Stewart plays his sister. Chris Tucker plays a uh, an agent who's trying to make a movie, get a movie deal done for the soldiers. As I mentioned, Steve Martin is in this. He's the football team owner who's not Jerry Jones. Uh, Mackenzie Lee is the cheerleader who's not the Dallas Cowboy cheerleader. And Vin Diesel shows up as a soldier from uh, from Billy's past that's a part of this festivities. As I said before, it's directed by Ang Lee, who, as I was thinking back on his filmography, has one of the most eclectic filmographies as a director. Of course, uh, the first thing I saw him do... In of all places, I saw his, I saw the wedding banquet in a mall theater in Anderson, and I don't know who booked that, but thanks for that over 20 years ago. But since then, of course, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, Sense and Sensibility, The Ice Storm, Race with the Devil, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Hulk, yeah, I like that one. I know a lot of folks didn't. Lust Caution, Taking Woodstock, and of course, he got two Academy Awards for directing Brokeback Mountain and Life of Pi. And... An impressive, vast variety of work, but and and I kept wondering what the connection was with these films, and I I, I can't remember who wrote it originally. It might have been the gents from Rolling Stone. I wish I had, but it was Ang Lee's look at outsiders. And if you think about it, the the Bennett's, or not the Bennett's, but the but the sisters in Sense and Sensibility, um, the the cowboys in Brokeback, the guy trying to find spirituality in Life of Pi, Hulk, nobody understands him, the aging samurai Ronins in Crouching Tiger. Um, so anyway, I, I kind of get that, and and so that th- that fits this perfectly. It's it's a good film. It's not a great film, and I think I expect great films from Ang Lee, but I think even. Even a good film, it shouldn't be labeled as a misstep, um, but it, it's pretty solid, and uh, I'm, I'm I'm intrigued to see what other folks think about this when it when it, it's out there. So anyway, that's out in theaters. Uh, go check that out. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit because last week on the show, uh, I was I was talking about the film Shut In with Naomi Watts, and of course the idea of being shut in with Naomi Watts. That's a different movie. <laughs> it, it's not Zalman King's The Shining. Uh, <laughs> That's a different movie, but but there's a film, and I guess the film's a week old, and it's already dying at the box in theater. So I can I can bring this up. But Oliver Platt plays her uh, her mentor, and uh, she's a psychologist. And we get to a point near the end of the film, the last third of the film t- kind of turns into dumb horror movie, which is which is pretty unfortunate. Uh, and uh, Oliver Platt's character gets the Scatman Crothers treatment. <laughs> 
You know which film I'm talking about. That might about. be worth seeing just for that. Um, it's not ne- well. It's not nearly as suspenseful and drawn out as Mr. Kubrick's work, but that's kind of what he just shows up in a bad storm and he, something worse happens. Right. And um, and as he's dying, he whispers into Naomi Watts's ear about playing along with the psycho killer so she can get out of there. And I think as an established psychologist, her character probably could have figured this mm-hmm. out to begin with. <laughs> But then again, if if that scene doesn't happen and that character doesn't happen, then I guess Oliver Platt's not doing the film. And it just it really started to bother me. And I kept thinking it, it, it felt like cinematic mansplaining. And I don't know if I it, I can't really fault the actor. He took the role. I, I fault the the screenwriter who is female, but I kept wondering if there were other moments of cinematic mansplaining. And Erica, you had one, and I I talked about this on Facebook earlier this week, and I'll read some of these a little bit. And I guess some of the questions have been, is it the writing, is it or is it exposition, or is it both? And I I, I know you had an example that you were talking earlier from uh, Joel and Ethan Cohen. Right. Well, uh, in Fargo... uh... When they actually find the bodies out in the snow, um, Marge Gunderson and her, I guess, partner, I'm not sure if he's partner, deputy, whatever, uh, but he launches into a long explanation of what it was that happened to them. And she, you know, just is there and listening through the whole thing. And when he gets to the end, all she says is, I'm not sure I agree with you 100% on your police work there. Um, so, and I, it, it could be that they're doing a, you know, sort of poking fun at, uh, the guy who always thinks he should be in charge and be the one explaining, or it could be that they're poking fun at the Midwest thing of, um, letting always somebody, being polite. Letting exactly. somebody speak their piece. Exactly. Being polite, being understated. If you're going to you bring someone up short, you say something like that rather than, you know, you're full of wild blueberry muffins. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's from the thing from another world. Oh, okay. I was that's about a to line say, from the thing from another world. Oh, I was world. really hoping that was from you. That's that's no, strong. I wish that I could. I wish that I could claim that. Well, I know that we're not allowed to curse. On, thank you on this show. Yes, so, thank you. Appreciate that. So yeah, um, <laughs> okay. but but I think it's a good ex. You know, it, it's a good, good example of mansplaining. I think um, because she is she is a. Policewoman of many years' experience. She's obviously highly competent. You know, mm-hmm. why does he immediately launch into? Well, here's what happened. Like he's psychic, and it also helps <laughs> that he, he the character is a, a bit of a doofus. Yeah. And then and she and then of course the follow up is he he feels dumb and she tells the joke about the uh, license plate. And that kind of smooths things yes, out. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And I, there, I don't think there's a woman alive who doesn't know that feeling of, you know, oh, I, I hurt, hurt his feelings by knowing stuff, so <laughs> I should, you know, make him laugh or whatever. I've got, you know, yeah. And then exactly. later, make him feel better. And then there's a little more mansplaining from William H Macy with the two times that uh, that Marge sees uh, Jerry Lundegaard. Yeah, well, I mean, he just—he's highly defensive, obviously, because Very defensive, he's, yeah. he's guilty as sin. And yeah, I mean, because he even manages to—he's so annoying that he, he just gets, gets Mar- Marge actually raises her voice, which like doesn't ever happen. That's right. You have no call to get snippy with me. I'm <laughs> exactly. just doing my job. I'm like, oh, exactly, exactly. So his in that case, his mansplaining is simply he's just trying to cover his own butt. Right. You know. Okay, so we—I uh, went online and talked about this on uh, on Facebook earlier this week, and I got to give props to Eric and Stacy Studeville who have been regulars on the show. Their example was any male that crossed paths with Jodie Foster in contact. <laughs> so that's that's pretty good. Um, my buddy Bill from Anderson, I think he originally from Anderson, he just wrote, use the force, Luke. 
I don't think that's quite the mansplaining no. we're looking for. Well, but, maybe we, should we should or, we try to define mansplaining? Because some people okay. either think or pretend to think that it means any man explaining anything ever, which that would be ludicrous. It, to, but it's, it's it's explaining it to a woman with a with a condescending tone. I'm going to let you verify that. Yes. Yeah. And and I would go on to say if you if it's not reasonable to think that this person doesn't already have this knowledge. So let's say I go see my doctor who happens to be a man mm-hmm. and he starts explaining to me something that he doesn't he could not reasonably expect that I already know that. I'm fine with that. That's not mansplaining. You see Erica Equus is a drama. <laughs> exactly. Written, uh, see, there you go. So. so you know I was in Equus, so it's not reasonable to assume that I know nothing about it. See, Gertrude, <laughs> what she did, see, that's it. She pats me on the head in real life. Right. Okay, so, so that's basically it. So I don't think it's male bashing to say. No, we're not saying men are not allowed to ever explain anything. It's if are you explaining it and you're assuming that the woman doesn't know about it already simply because she's a woman, then that is mansplaining. What she said. <laughs> okay, moving on. Um, let's see. Melissa from Indianapolis writes: Any movie made from a Dan Brown book? See, I haven't watched any movies made okay. from Dan Brown books because I tried reading a Dan Brown book once, okay. and that was all I the, needed. The, the female lead exists solely for the main character, Tom Hanks, to or any Dan Brown book, to explain all the plot points to her. Uh, my buddy Sam, Sam Watermeyer, who I saw last night, he writes about uh, Shut In. Oliver Platt's character is so dismissive of her problems, there were several occasions where he's literally laughing at her on Skype. <laughs> I went, yeah, that happened. Um Molly from Indianapolis, I have two almost examples. In the film version of The Da Vinci Code, all power is removed from Sophie. She was supposed to be a respected police cryptologist, and if I remember correctly, it was she who determined where the rose line ended, not Langdon. It's a movie that's uh, ostensibly about the innate and underrated power of womanhood, and most of Audrey Titu's lines are... But I don't understand. <laughs> Only it sounds better from Audrey Titu. The little thing that makes me the maddest is that where they're in the back of the armored truck and a villain fires a shot to determine how serious he is. It is Langdon, a professor, who pushes the casing into the door tra- into the door track so it can't close rather than Sophie, a police officer. Uh, and then I was rewatching A League of Their Own the other day. Before Jimmy cleans up his act, he's asleep in the dugout drunk while Dottie coaches the team to victory. The announcer states something along the lines of, and Jimmy Dugan leads his team to victory. He sure knows his baseball. <laughs> this is obviously an intentional slight. We cut to the girls celebrating to cheer and cheering for Dottie to Jimmy drunk and asleep. Yeah, that's that's pretty good. Uh, Nick Rogers, fellow film critic, writes, Patrick Wilson, when possessed, does a lot of aggressive mansplaining in Insidious Chapter 2. Um, my buddy Amy in Richmond writes, this might be kind of a reverse, but she she posts a link to the, uh, to the Bechdel test, the Bechdel movie test. So, yes, that's good. Um, <laughs> Amy from Richmond also writes, I was actually going to respond with practically every movie ever made. <laughs> But that's not a like, productive, legitimate discussion to analysis. Thank you. Uh, Lou Harry, of course, uh, Batman tells Wonder Woman she's wrong, wrong, wrong about the world. <laughs> Diana Prince, 100 years ago, I walked away from mankind from a century of horrors. Men made a good, made a world where standing together is impossible. Bruce Wayne, men are still good. We fight, we kill, we betray one another, but we can rebuild. We can do better. We will. We have to. That's just bad writing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty good. Uh, Michael from Indianapolis writes, I think there's some of that going on in Twister, which is needed because all the very good acting skills of Helen Hunt to be not laughing out loud when Bill Paxton is mansplaining things. <laughs> that's good. Um, Lyrit 
from Austin writes, um, I can't read it all, but basically she goes a little off. Almost all crime shows, your uh, Criminal Minds and CIS leverage. Uh, Mark Struther writes uh, from Indianapolis, uh, the scene in The Shining where Jack is explained to Wendy what's going on in the lobby, whether he's typing or not. Yeah. Um, he also writes about the African queen when Charlie explains to Rose how the river works or how the boat works. Um, that's pretty good. Um, Nikki writes pretty much. Oh, Nikki Staggs in the uh, WFYI zone. Nikki Staggs pretty much every single line spoken to Rose in Titanic. Mm. But especially when she mentions the lack of lifeboats, I believe the phrase used was don't worry, I'll build I built you a fine ship. And her fiancé with, what a waste of deck space, if you ask me. Yeah, that worked out. Now, that's kind of an example, along with A League of Their Own, where they're really kind of making fun of the men for being so arrogant. Yep. Susanna writes, um, nine to five, working girl, and baby boom. As, I guess sure. as a whole. Get, yeah. Right, sure. And again, I think that they, those movies were actually making points that men do that go. to women. Uh, Jonathan writes, Rosemary's Baby. Yes, absolutely. A nightmare scenario where a woman is made part of a bargain to further her husband's career. She looks to Charles Grodin for help, who disregards her as a hysterical female. Um, that's pretty good. That that movie also has a lot of um, Ruth Gordon splaining in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it does. And we're all better for that, actually. <laughs> um, my first dark comedy was Harold and Maude. Oh, really? That explains quite a bit. Thomas writes three little words. My fair lady. Yeah. That's definitely. Yeah. I think I responded with gown. Um, I remember seeing that as a young girl and like I just I, I so hated the whole ideology of it that I couldn't enjoy the rest of it. I remember showing, and when she went back to him. I was just livid. <laughs> I remember showing Emma um, the Liz and Dick version of Taming the Shrew. And Emma finally said, I know I'm not supposed to use this word, but can I hate this guy? <laughs> I suppose so, dear. Um, Kate from Indianapolis writes, it's been a bit, but Ellen Page's character in Inception uh, is either mansplaining or a character who only exists to explain things to the audience. Might be two sides of the same coin. Um, Abby from Indianapolis writes Jurassic World. Uh, basically, Chris Pat, Chris Pratt talking to uh, um, Bryce Dallas Howard. Uh, Brian Hartz, our guy. Uh, everybody at the Ministry of Magic in the Harry Potter films. <laughs> when the kids try to tell them that Voldemort is back. Maybe that's more adult explaining, though, although Professor Umbridge is one of the chief proponents in the ministry's denial. That's pretty good. Um, Jeff Goldblum talking to Laura Dern in Jurassic Park. Um, yeah, so we've had we've had quite a bit. Somebody wrote about Ex Machina. Oh, Chris. Chris from uh, writes about Ex Machina. My buddy Jeff writes Double Indemnity. Um, <laughs> and that's a, a hilarious one because, of course, she's the one who really is – Pulling all the strings. We love film noir movie. for that. Yeah, but you know, Fred Mc- if Fred McMurray calls you baby, he deserves everything. He gets. <laughs> That's just uncomfortable and weird. Because the you know the apartment wasn't enough. Thanks, Fred. <laughs> anyway, those those are out there. So there there's some cinematic mansplaining. And uh, well, anyway, thank you for for making me feel less piggish about that. Here to help. I know you are. Okay, uh, moving. You, so you didn't want to mention when Harry met Sally? Oh, please, no. Mention mention that, please. Well, I just realized today when I was trying to come up with uh, examples of this that when Harry met Sally, which is a movie that I saw when it came out and found it delightful, and I still find it very funny, etc. The entire movie is Billy Crystal's character mansplaining to Meg Ryan's character. I Except mean. when it comes to cough. No, when it comes to ice cream and pie. But yeah. 
Well, okay, that's true. But I mean, he even goes to the extent of, you know, basically psychoanalyzing her, telling her, you know, who and what she is. Um, And Mm -hmm. uh, it assumes that the audience will find this charming. And when Harry Mansali was written by a woman, Nora Ephron. So now we're really getting weird and meta. Well, Nora could do that from time to time. That was, that was all right. So, I, and I, I was telling her later, I need to watch. I need to watch *Minority and Sally* again. I have, I have always dismissed it as Annie, as you know, Annie Hall's uh, more likable younger brother. And uh, I showed Emma *500 Days of Summer*, and uh, that's really the child. Of, that's really Annie Hall Jr. when it comes to nonlinear relationships. But I think I need to. I probably have to watch it again, especially since I have a teenage daughter in the house, and I know my wife likes it. So. Anyway, a um, couple of titles of note on DVD and Blu-ray. Uh, the, the really the, the new title that came out and nobody wanted to compete with it is Finding Dory. <laughs> um, and and Finding Dory is in the, the double feature with Monsters University. It's a nice film, not really needed. <laughs> nice to see the characters again. Not even close to the original, but a nice film nonetheless. So a uh, couple of some old titles on Blu-ray. And I know you've seen some of these, which is why you're amazing. But uh, <laughs> Criterion, uh, the Criterion uh, collection, uh, by the way, there's a certain chain uh, bookstore in the country. It's not Borders, you know, the other one. They're still doing 50% off on Criterion's through the end of the month. And two more titles on Criter- available now on Criterion. Paul Thomas Anderson's Punch Drunk Love with, yes, the time Adam Sandler was allowed to actually act, as well as Akira Kurosawa's Dreams from 1990. A few other titles of note on Blu-ray, because you need these. The picture's much more clear. Not a date film, David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers. <laughs> Jeremy Irons as identical twin gynecologists fighting over Jean-Bierre Bougeau. Did you actually take a date to this? No, <laughs> no. I did other dumb films to take on a first date, not this one. So, so this is not The Dead Ringers with Betty Davis. No, it is not that. That's a slightly better date film than that. <laughs> you know what? Now I'm imagining trying to see Betty Davis with David Cronenberg. That I'm going to say. I'm trying to imagine Betty well. Davis, lady gynecologist. Ew. Oh, that's a lot of cigarette Just, ash. I was going to say the cigarette <laughs> ash alone. Yep. So, no, that's. Dangerous. Different dead ringers. So um, I remember I had Jonathan Scott on in Property Brothers, and my final question to him was, what's the better twins film, Parent Trap or Dead Ringers? And he he just laughed and said twins, and that was his answer. (laughs) Probably safe bet. (laughs) Um, Also out on Blu-ray, because you need these, Time After Time. So you can have uh, Malcolm McDowell as H.G. Wells. Huge fan of that movie. Uh, A rare non-villain performance from Malcolm McDowell and Mary Steenburgen and David Warner. Um, Got to see that in my film genre class. Uh, Big salute to Wes Gehring for that. From 1987, the Scott Glenn film Man on Fire, which was later kind of remade with Denzel Washington. Uh, Scott Glenn's a mercenary who's a bodyguard for hire in Italy. And, of course, Denzel got to do it a few years ago with Dakota Fanning and director Tony Scott. And the 1985 TV film version of Death of a Salesman. Oh, yeah, Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman, Hoffman, young John Malkovich, Kate Reed. Um, John Malkovich's wig is amazing. (laughs) It deserves its own award. He was born bald and, and 30 Kind of. At least 30. Yeah, yeah. exactly. But uh, that was my, I was 15 when that came on TV, and that was my introduction to that play. So uh, very solid, very impactful. All right. um, I want to 
play an interview I did recently with uh, writer Dan Epstein. I got to know Dan on Facebook because he'd written a couple of books about baseball in the 70s and uh, and baseball cards from the 70s. This was an era when they were not models, they were ball players, and they didn't have as much money as they do now. But uh, Dan's also a writer for uh, Rolling Stone magazine, and he recently did an article about the 1971 spaghetti western Blind Man, which starred Tony Anthony, but the but the real casting <laughs> coup was Ringo Starr. So this is my chat with Dan Epstein talking about that film as well as the 70s filmography of Ringo Starr, also known as Your Pledge Dollars at Work here at Film Sociology. Dan Epstein, I guess we start the chat with um, w- what made you want to watch the film Blind Man? Well, I'm a huge spaghetti western fan to begin with. And I'm also a huge Ringo Starr fan, so when you have the <laughs> combination it. of Ringo Starr and a spaghetti western, I'm all in. I would say, yeah, because, uh, of course, the article in Rolling Stone, which you can still read online at rollingstone.com, Blind Man, the story behind a drunk Beatles spaghetti western. Uh, for those who don't know, and, and I've actually seen that, I, I think TCM plays it at least once or twice a year. Tell folks about Blind Man and its big star, Tony Anthony. Yeah, it, it's it's... You know, for for lovers of spaghetti westerns, it's it's uh, you know not a particularly um, d- a big departure from the genre. Basically, Tony Anthony, who's an American actor who had a lot of uh, roles in in similar films in Italy in the '60s and '70s, uh, plays a a blind bounty hunter. Which uh, you know, in many spaghetti westerns, uh, the, the Hero or anti-hero, as the case may be, has very, uh, you know, has some sort of thing that's uh, uh, some kind of handicap or uh, something that gets in his his way. So that this guy actually uh, somehow manages to uh, track down his various quarries uh, uh, with the help of only a what's basically a seeing eye horse and uh and a an embossed leather map of North America which uh, helps him uh, find his way so uh he is basically in in blind man uh blind man the, the bounty hunter is uh charged with tracking down 50 women who were supposedly uh going to be sent to miners in Texas kind of uh, mail order brides situation, but uh, who instead have been kidnapped by some bandits in Mexico. And so he must go to Mexico to uh, to, to recover them. And uh, among the bandits uh, is a guy by the name of Candy, played by Ringo Starr, uh, who is uh, the brother of the, the head of the, the bandit gang, but uh, is, is too, obs- too busy uh, trying to woo uh, a woman that he loves uh, to to be of much good to the bandit gang. So really, that one part of you, that last sentence you just mentioned—that is the only connection between Blind Man and Ringo's bit in A Hard Day's Night. Yeah, basically, he's he's uh, uh, he, he's, he's definitely you know it's it, it's interesting to to uh, to see him on screen in this because obviously this is uh, about eight years removed from A Hard Day's Night, but he's still. You know the things that that made Ringo such an appealing presence in in Hard Day's Night are, are still very much uh, apparent in Blind Man, even though now he's he's older, he's got a big black beard, and and he's playing a pretty um, for once he's playing a pretty um, nasty character, you know, not not somebody who's in, in any way uh, you know you feel any kind of 
real empathy with. But you know, he still has that that kind of sadness, that melancholy that that uh, he exudes in Hard Day's Night. Uh, he's, he still kind of exudes in, in Blind Man, and I think that that gives his performance uh, a, a little more uh, layer, you know, more layers, more nuance than than uh, another actor might have given it. And he had already had, I mean, his his non-Beatles cinema work, you know, prior to this, I know Candy and The Magic Christian, and he basically played Mini Zappa in, in 200 Motels. I mean, these, these have not been the, you know, this was not the Elvis path as far as, no, or, no, or, really. or if you were a singer, you know, like the singer sidekick, like Glenn Campbell in a John Wayne film, you know, or Bobby Darren or Ricky Nelson. Right. It, it, he definitely was not going for glamour roles, uh, to, to say the least. I mean, you know, he was, Ringo was, was not, you know, it wasn't like Paul McCartney, you know, who was really like the glamour boy of the Beatles. Ringo, you know, had, had more of kind of a, a puppy dog, but, uh, um, you know, always had a bit of an outcast element to him i think even in the beatles because he the man brought last, country so. music the man brought country music to the beatles yes i mean you know what 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 more can <laughs> really i mean what, what a great thing in itself so uh yeah he, he took he took kind of an, an odd career path and, and blind man was made about a year after the beatles you know publicly broke up they'd actually been sort of dissolved a little while before that. And I think he was really, both in music and in film, just trying to find a place for himself, uh, you know, without the, in, in the world without a Be- without the Beatles, because, you know, you, you, he'd been in this, this such intense and dynamic world uh, with three other guys who were really, you know, his family and his creative partners. And now that was mostly gone, although he still played with uh, with George and, and John. So uh, it was kind of, kind of a quest for identity, and I think also, uh, you know, Blind Man was being shot in Italy and Spain, and hey, you know, let's 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 go have a drunken vacation in Spain, and uh, we'll shoot a movie. Well, uh, how bad can that be? At least with this one, Nilsson wasn't involved, and that's another film. But uh, but we'll 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 get the Son of Dracula in, in a little bit. <laughs> Things you never thought you'd say on NPR. Um, I would say, I, I think I remember right, um, I can't remember which book it is, but I know Blind Man, if it isn't a nominee, I think it's a Golden Turkey Award winner, if I remember correctly. Really? I'm, I'm not sure of that, but I wouldn't be surprised. I, I mean, it, it's it's actually a much better film than that would imply. Uh, but, you know, there for people who are not used to the sort of campy aspects of spaghetti westerns, I could see that that it would seem like a crummy film or, or, or an absurd film in some ways, but it's, it's, it's really, uh, it's, it's quite solid that the photography uh, is, is absolutely, uh, you know, the cinematography is absolutely gorgeous and uh, you know, there's good, good action scenes. It's a, it's a solid Western. And I know it's, it's, I think it was uh, Ferdinando Baldi who directed this. I know he had directed Anthony and stuff before and he would do so since, um, and I'm trying to remember, but I think didn't didn't Ringo provide a song or try to provide a song for the film? He he did, and and it did not it did not make the cut of the soundtrack. The soundtrack is done by uh, a man named Stelvio Cipriani, who is is really kind of an underrated Italian uh, film composer. Uh, I think a lot of his stuff is 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 very much in the uh, Morricone league. But he's he's much less well known, and Ringo uh, recorded wrote and recorded a song called Blind Man, uh, which 
was rejected by the film's producers and later turned up on uh, on the B side of I think uh, Goodnight Vienna and um or no uh was it back off Boogaloo? what one, one of his early 70s yeah back off Boogaloo was one of his early 70s B sides and and it's really it's kind of a dirgy um odd little song i can see that beatles fans ringo fans who bought that 45 and flipped it over and heard blind man probably wondered what that was all about but if you listen to the lyrics it's very clearly based upon the uh the plot of the movie now wasn't blind man supposed to I and mean, everybody a lot of most people should know and if they, they don't they should about the the connection between um the the man with no name films, well, especially a fistful of dollars in Yojimbo, and of course Seven Samurai with the Magnificent Seven. But was was Blind Man the attempt to do a Western version of a famous samurai series? Right, the uh, uh, Zatoichi films uh, in Japan is a whole series about a, an itinerant blind swordsman, and uh, so this is so Blind Man here is the, the Western version of that. You know, whereas in the Japanese films, the swordsman can. You know he's he's deadly with with a blade even though he he can't actually see who he's swinging it at. Uh, blind man in uh, in this film you know, is is a crack shot with a rifle even though you know all all you need to do is point him in the general direction and uh, and he can uh, hit the target. Well, and I think in a, in a in a different seventies film you would just saw off the shotgun and then anybody could hit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. What yeah, this, is, this is an actual like nineteenth century carbine, right? Oh, so, you know, one one shot at a time. There you go. All right. What was better, Ringo's film output in the seventies or his music output? Hmm. I'm I'm going to go with his his. I'm sorry. His his musical output, at least in the early seventies. Uh, I mean, I, to me, his his singles, "It Don't Come Easy" and "Back Off Boogaloo" and "Photograph." I mean, I think that's as that's as good as pretty much any of the Beatles uh, did uh, pop-wise in, in the 70s. I mean, obviously, Lennon and Harrison and McCartney all had some, some fantastic albums, but I, I, I really loved uh, uh, Ringo's run of pop hits. And I always remember, of course, he, did, he performed at the concert for Bangladesh, and he flubbed, right. he flubbed the lyrics to his own song. Well, in fact, he had to take a break from sh- from shooting Blind Man to go back and play at the concert for, Bang- for Bangladesh at Madison Square Garden. So that might have accounted for uh, – yeah, he might not have completely been in the zone at that time. That's a legit excuse. That's good. Um, okay, I-, I was looking through the rest of his film well, – a big chunk of his filmography. I'm saying I- this is what you get here at NPR, Ringo Starr film information. Um <laughs> Somebody has to do it, but um, have you seen some of the films like That'll Be the Day or Son of Dracula? I have never seen Son of Dracula. I hear it's an absolute train wreck. I have seen That'll Be the Day, which which I quite like. I think uh, that that's kind of an underrated film, actually, um, at, at least as far as uh, you know, seventies rock and seventies films that look back at fifties rock and roll go. I think that's. Did that come after American Graffiti? Because I know that was the big 70s, 50s nostalgia at that point. Um, I think it did come just shortly after. Um, That and and, uh, Stardust were another one. It was another British one along those lines. Yeah, I I believe it did. It it was all right around the same time as American Graffiti. 
And uh, if if you want, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you know, we did not post it. Somebody posted in its entirety, Son of Dracula, on YouTube. Um, you, you know, <laughs> I'll you're, have to check it out then. You're on your own on that one, I'm just saying. And then, uh, you know, here's a, here's a man whose film career, he obviously played a Beatle, played himself, played mini Frank Zappa, and then he later played the Pope for Ken Russell in uh, Listomania. Right. And... Uh... Uh, and but then you know he 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 went on to, well and then of course there was Caveman. In, I, uh, I saw Caveman. I saw that in the theaters with my parents. I, I did too. <laughs> Good. You know what? I never thought I'd yearn for Quest of Fire or Clan of the Cave Bear again. But yeah, I, compared to Caveman, despite the presence, despite Shelley Long trying to look like One Million Years BC Raquel Welch or Barbara Bach for that matter. Right, or, or or the presence of John Matuzak, or uh, Quinn Raider, uh, <laughs> defensive uh, player. Uh, yeah, it's uh, that definitely uh, one of those one of those films from the late seventies, early eighties, where you know that cocaine uh, it's a constituted hell... a significant part of the budget. It's a hell of a drug. Um, yeah. That being said, you still think all of and you all I think all the films we've discussed is still better than than Give My Regards to Broad Street. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't sit through that with a gun in my head again. <laughs> you know, it's like that that really uh, one of um, I, I would be curious to hear Paul McCartney's uh, uh, defense of that film at this point uh, in time. But uh, at the time, I'm sure he thought it was a good idea. I think with the exception and, and I think also if you put it, I don't think I've ever heard Paul say anything bad about anything. And that included meat and writing with John Lennon. Well, he's always a diplomat, our Paul is. Even the ex-wife. But anyway, um, I want to shift gears a little bit because part of the reason why I got to know you, and once again, ladies and gentlemen, social media can be used for good, not for evil. Um, but true. but I wanted to bring up the two your your one two punch of uh, big hair and plastic grass as well as stars and strikes. Uh, on behalf of sports nerds everywhere, thank you for making these. Oh, oh, you're you're quite welcome. I, uh, I'm very proud of those books. I would say what so for those who haven't seen them, could you tell us about them and and what inspired you to write them? Yeah, um, the two books, uh, one is called Big Hair and Plastic Grass, A Funky Ride Through Baseball in America in the Swinging 70s, and that kind of covers, it kind of looks at baseball during the 1970s, how how many changes came to pass in the sport uh, during that decade, and it really how different the game was in 1980 versus 1970, and just like what a what a crucial decade it is in baseball history. And then Stars and Strikes is specifically about uh, baseball in America uh, during the bicentennial, 1976. And uh, while writing Big Hair and Plastic Brass, I, I realized that 1976 is a very critical year in the sport. Uh, in itself, yet it's one that's often kind of overlooked, and for various reasons. And so, and plus, 1976 was just a really interesting and fun year to uh, to be alive in America. So, I, it was kind of my, my personal time machine uh, back to 1976, and really, uh, really uh, soaking it up, and then uh, putting it back on the page for uh, for people to enjoy. Uh, who, who was your team growing up? Well, um, my very first team was the Detroit Tigers, and uh, I fell in love with them in 1976, which was the same year that Mark Fidrich 
uh, had his breakout uh, rookie season and uh, won won the American League Rookie of the Year award, won 19 games, uh, won the American League ERA, ERA title, uh, despite not even really uh, getting his first start in a game until the middle of May. So uh, I, I, I was living in Ann Arbor, Michigan at the time. So you know, the bird was definitely the word for uh, me and my friends. Uh, Dan, full, full disclosure, I grew up in Flint. Right on. And, uh, yeah, I also remember him destroying the Yankees on Monday Night Baseball, and that was a huge deal for a kid uh, growing up in Michigan. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, the Tigers had been so so bad, and, you know, I became a Tigers fan at a time in their history where everybody was just, you know, used to them being pathetic. So, uh, so to see this guy come along who really looked like – you know, I always thought of him as sort of a grown-up or semi-grown-up uh, member of the Bad News Bears. And the Bad News Bears also came out in 1976, which, you know, I still believe is the greatest baseball film ever made. So, uh, so all these things kind of came together to convince me that 1976 was uh, was a book, you know, was a book in itself. I'll get to the Bad News Bears in a second, but I always remember. I think my first two sports heartbreaks. One was when they traded Ben Ogilvy because I didn't realize yeah. that players could be traded at that time, and and then of course the the injuries that that plagued uh, Fidrich's career and the rest of his life really. Yeah, it, it was it was so sad, and and I mean eh, it just seemed like every year there would be the news stories of you know the bird is back, he's uh, and he's healthy, he's pitching really well, and he always would be for come back and pitch really well for about, you know, five or six games, and then he'd get, he'd get injured again. And, I mean, the tragedy of, of the Mark Fidrich story is that he was about five or six years too early. Uh, they, he basically had a rotator cuff tear that went undiagnosed because they didn't know that such things existed. And by the early 80s, if, he, if he'd been pitching then, they could have figured out figured it out and uh, given him the you know appropriate surgery and he could have uh, probably resurrected his career but uh, as it was he really only had one full season which was 1976 and that was a great year for kids I could tell I remember that um, I wanted okay you you mentioned the bad news bears as the greatest baseball film ever made and I think with the exception of hockey and slapshot there, I think that the the genre and the sport is up for debate. Please state your argument on Bad News Bears being the greatest baseball film. I I really can't argue with it. Although I'm a pig and I enjoy watching Susan Sarandon and Bull Durham. <laughs> well, actually, I think Bull, Bull Durham is maybe the second greatest baseball movie ever made. The, the the thing that ruins it for me is that awful Kevin Costner monologue about uh, you know all the things he believes in. That just just strikes me as as a as a screenwriter trying to uh, you know trying to get fancy. Wait a minute, wor- worse worse than Tim Robbins is pitching. <laughs> well, that's bad, but you know I think I think we've become a nerd to uh, to actors uh, uh, performing badly as as uh, athletes. Uh, but the uh, the thing with Bad News Bears, one of the many things I love about it is that all the dialogue sounds completely natural. It doesn't sound like a, a, a screenwriter trying to impress somebody. It doesn't sound like, you know, um, writers trying to shoehorn inappropriate words into into the mouths of the characters. Like every, everything that the kids say, everything that Walter Matthau as as Moore's Buttermaker says, it's it's all 
it, it all feels lived in. It feels real. And, and I think for whatever reason, that's a really rare thing in films about baseball. It, it all seems to be written, um, you know, almost uh, in a factory somewhere. It's not, it's, it doesn't, it never feels real to me. And Bad News Bears has always felt real. I would say, I, 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 one, you forget there's, you have two Academy Awards in the cast with, with Mathau and O'Neill. Um, right, to, to, to this day, I still quote Mathau if I, on this, uh, you know, there's one of those things where when, when the situation arises, when in doubt, just say, look, I don't know who the hell you are, but sit down and shut up. <laughs> That is a great line. There, there are so many great lines in it, and and you know, obviously the kids uh, get off a lot of uh, off color, uh, uh, memorably off color lines. But yeah, it's it's. Yeah, I, I probably watch that film uh, at least twice a year. I actually hosted a co-hosted a screening of it in Chicago this past summer, and it was such a treat to see it on the big screen again. Oh, but, I bet. But you know, I, I just every time I watch it, I get something new out of it. I'm saying, and and also, I think this was probably the first time that we had foul mouthed kids in cinema, if I remember correctly. I can't think of anything at least of this magnitude. Yeah, and, and that's the other thing, right? That these kids are not like you know scrubbed and polished Hollywood, you know, moppets who who wow you with their cuteness. I mean, they're all like. I, mean, they, I think one of the reasons I loved this film so much when I was a kid was they looked like how my friends and I looked. Like, you know, none of us had had a bath in a week. We all, you know, had long, greasy hair. We all, uh, you know, uh, several, many of us, uh, you know, had had uh, dried snot on our sleeves. It, it, you know, and, and we were all uh, rebellious and we all, uh, did, you know, were... were uh, foul-mouthed and, uh, you know, like to cause trouble. And it was just like, yeah, these were real kids. This is this, These these are American kids in the mid-'70s. Exactly. Um, okay, just out of curiosity, what which professional baseball teams have the best and the worst representation in cinema? Ooh, that's a, that's a good – you mean best in terms of – of well represented, sure, or, sure. Or why not quality of representation? Uh, either way, either way. I threw I threw that question at you, so you can answer it either way. Well, I mean, I, it's, I mean, the Yankees have to be up up near the top, and it, just in terms of uh, you know, quantity, I think most most films, uh, the great percentage of baseball films about uh, major league teams probably would would be about the Yankees. Um, you know, as a Tigers fan, I'm struggling to think of how many, how many times the Tigers have actually been on the uh, big screen. And I can, uh, I can well, I, I guess uh, what, what was that for the love of the game? There was that the, Kevin Costner one. There was for love of the game. Uh, yeah, which is um, okay. Yeah. But but you know, it, I, I you have to give it. Yeah, I don't care about the love story as much as I love looking at Kelly Lynch. But your manager's J.K. Simmons, who's a legit Tigers fan, and yeah. John C. Riley's your catcher. That's not bad. Yeah, that that is pretty cool. But, and you've got Vince Scully calling the game. That's right. Um, I also remember. Um, I think it was like eighty three or eighty four. There was a film called Tiger Town. With Justin Henry and a way too old Roy Scheider as an aging tiger, which they wow. shot. Wow, I shot have in no tr- memory of this. Uh, but as a Roy Scheider fan, I'm, and as a tiger fan, I clearly need to track this down. Look for it. I don't know if it's on video or anything like that. And then I, you know, it, it, I remember the TV film of the Ron Lafleur story with Levar Burton. Right. 
you know. that's the first one that comes to mind. Uh, I believe that was called Breakout. Um, or, or no, one no. in a million. Uh, one in a million. Yeah. Right. Right. Breakout was the original name of Lafleur's autobiography, and then they changed it uh, to One in a Million after the uh, after the show. But yes, I mean, I, I I love that for that show for a number of reasons. Um, or and I think you can still see most of it, if not all of it, on YouTube. But uh, in, in, aside from a young Lavar Burton playing uh, Ron Lafleur. Uh, you have like many actual Detroit Tigers. Yeah, at that time. In, at the at the time, or or they just retired. You know, like Norm Cash came out of retirement to uh, to play himself, <laughs> and Billy Martin, who I believe was with the Yankees at that point, or maybe yeah, yeah. I guess he would have been a, a the Yankee manager at that point. He actually uh, appeared as himself, but yeah. in a Tigers uniform. Uh, uh, giving giving uh, Lafleur a tryout at Tiger Stadium, and that's another great thing about that film. Is like you, I believe it was shot at Tiger Stadium before they did the big renovation, so you can actually get a good look at what what the park looked like in the '60s and '70s. Yep, I would say um, going back a little bit with uh, social media and how you and I connected, um, I, I have to tell you, I don't know how many times I forwarded images of baseball cards from the 70s to people because I have friends from Oakland and friends from Cleveland and my Detroit guys and uh the the baseball cards at that time were were pretty phenomenal and I th- of course we mentioning Billy Martin um I'm happy to say I own the one where he's he's giving the middle finger while holding the bat <laughs> a classic classic yeah I, I the 70s I mean, I think some of it is just because of, you know, when we grew up. I mean, I only really collected baseball cards in the 70s. So um, cards that, that, you know, that came out after that just don't have the kind of iconic value to me that, that you know, say an Oscar Gamble 1976 traded card. The bad airbrush. Uh, right, with the bad airbrushing. And I remember pulling it out of the pack and re- remember, you know, like at the time that was for a lot of us, that was how we learned about these guys. That was yep. how we, you know, guys who didn't play for your team or you didn't didn't see them play against your team. It's, it's how you how you memorize the statistics were off the backs of baseball cards. You know, we didn't have baseballreference.com. We didn't have uh, – you know, uh, you know. I mean, there were baseball encyclopedias, but uh, those cost a lot more than the, you know, the ten cents uh, tops wax pack down at your drugstore. And the one card that you really want, and it's got a big piece of uh, gum grease on the back of oh, it. Oh yeah, yeah, right. There were the the sugar from yep, the, the uh, sugar. Yeah, that just like like I remember having a Johnny Bench oh. 1976 card that had complete. Yeah, just like sugar wipe, you know, oh. like across it. It looked like uh, I don't know, like uh, somebody had, had run over it with a with a bike. And and those those cards at that time also were a reminder that these were baseball players. They weren't models, right? Right. And and you know, and, and that's one of the things that's so interesting to me about the '70s in general is that these were guys who, you know, this was before. Uh, all these athletes, I mean, obviously you had the top tier guys like Reggie Jackson uh, uh, and and Johnny Bench doing uh, uh, various endorsements. But most of these guys were just, you know, kind of average Joes uh, who 
a lot of them had to work in the off season to uh, to make ends meet. Uh, as Robert Wool, as, as Robert Wool would say, selling Lady Kenmore's in the off season, ugly. ugly yeah, job. exactly. You know, or I mean, the the, the, the most famous example of that, that is uh, Richie Hebner, who played with the yep. Pirates, and he, he dug graves in the off season at his family's funeral home. So yeah, so uh, you know, guys guys like Hebner and. You know, I think Al Kaline with the Tigers sold insurance in the off season. I mean, it was just like anything to uh, to kind of make ends meet, and uh, you know, uh, and of course, businesses would be happy to have a professional baseball player uh, working for them because it was good PR for them. So, uh, and it was it was a it was such a different era, and of course, of course, now even even guys who sit on the bench, uh, you know, make make more money in a year than uh, most of us will ever see. Yeah, and I I think also by the time the '80s came around, when it came to cards, that that they were one, they were more action shots, and you could have a little more control over the content. And I think the two things that come to mind is you know after a while you didn't have the same baseball player with his fly open two years in a row, nor you had Billy Ripken's famous card with the ball bat. Right. <laughs> Face. Yeah, I yeah, think they they seemed a little more astute as far as uh, inspecting before those got printed. After that, yeah, I, th- I think so. Uh, but but it, I feel like the the overall, you know, not to say that that there was a ton of care that went into the images in the, on the seventies cards because you know the seventy three series especially uh, is, is famous for just like these strange action shots that in, in some cases don't even feature the player that you know is supposed to be on the card uh but but there's less so somehow the and again this may just be my 70s prejudice but somehow those 80s cards just are not as fun they're they're not as the 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 action shots are not as dynamic somehow the portraits are you know just look like they're kind of tossed off and maybe the quality of the cards uh uh, the, the actual printing wasn't as good. The other thing too is the tops, starting in 1979, started putting their um, uh, their logo and their uh, registered trademark uh, symbol next to it uh, on the front of each card, which you know made it. Uh, I think that that took away from the aesthetics of it. Now to wrap things up, I I I, I was looking at your blog and you you wrote this that at one time Mark Fidrich was offered a role in the film Grease. Yes, that that is true. In 1976, Mark Fidrich was, you know, the hottest thing in America. Like he was, he was uh, Peter Frampton, and 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 the Fonz rolled into one. Like everyone wanted a piece of him. Every you know wanted to sell Mark Fidrich merchandise. And the producer of Grease um, actually wanted to audition him for a role. It wasn't going to be like the John Travolta role, but, you know, one of the supporting roles just thought like, hey, you know, the guy's got a lot of natural presence in front of a camera, as we saw in that Monday night baseball game against the Yankees. And he's such a popular figure that, you know, people are going to flock to the movie theater to see him. But uh, the bird was not very interested in pursuing his his acting career or or uh, parlaying his his baseball fame into uh, silver screen fame. So he, uh, he he turned down the offer. Thank God. Too many. Too, we've seen too many ball players, especially on TV, that you know they get one or two lines, and you're like, God, go back to batting. 
Right. Well, the, the interesting thing is that Alan Carr, who was the producer for Grease, who wanted Fidrich for the film, uh, once Fidrich turned him down, he set his sights on another popular athlete from the summer of 1976, uh, Bruce Jenner, who had just won the uh, uh, decathlon at the, at the Olympic Games in Montreal. And uh, Bruce didn't didn't appear in Greece, but wound up appearing in Alan Carr's next film, which was the Village People vehicle. Can't stop the music. You mean you mean the film where he appeared in a half shirt, half net shirt, and <laughs> denim cut off shorts, directed by <laughs> Nancy sad. Walker? We didn't. We, nobody saw that coming. Apparently, no, no, nobody, no, nobody, you know. Uh, no, nobody thought that was a bad idea. No, that explains the lack of chemistry between him and uh, Valerie Perrine. Yes, it does. <laughs> well, I guess I, looking back, I, I thank God that Mark Fidrich didn't do Grease. However, I wish they they would have made a remake of uh, him in My Dinner with Andre with Bill Lee. Oh, that would have been that would have been great. Or really anything. Waiting for Godot. Any two person show. Zoo Story. The Dresser. <laughs> um, anything of those. The Dumb Waiter. That you know. That's a shame. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely, you know, that, that there's a place in my mind where, like, I like to imagine that that someday I'll be uh, seated at a table having dinner with uh, with Bill Lee and Oscar Gamble and Mickey Rivers and you know, a bunch of uh, a bunch of '70s characters like that. And unfortunately, uh, both uh, Mark Fidrich and and Doc Ellis, who would be another uh, great person on the guest list, are, are no longer with us. That's a lot of uh, I think as as uh, an impersonation of Bill Walton once said, "You can smell colors and see sound." Yep. <laughs> Indeed. You can go to rollingstone.com to see Dan Epstein's write-up on the film Blind Man, the story behind a drunk Beatles spaghetti western. Uh, Eric, I know you're going down to the art craft this weekend to see? To see Holiday Inn, the original movie that White Christmas was a remake of, and it's the movie that the song White Christmas first appeared in. Very good. And we're going to end today's show as a tribute to actor, with finger quotes, actor Tom Naiman, who we found out died earlier this week. His one screen credit, it's it's a quote-unquote favorite of Erica's as well as mine. <laughs> he played the master in Manos, the Hands of Fate from 1966, also known as one of my daughter's least favorite cinematic experiences. So Manos itself just turned 50 a couple days after Tom died. And priceless. Anyway, and timeless. Go see a good movie. You deserve it. You're listening to Film Sociology, a film talk show here on WFYI HD2 The Point and WFYI.org. Master, what are you doing here? You have failed us, Torgo. I know of your visits to the tomb. My visits? The women have told me. They may not be able to say anything or move when you're there. But they remember everything you say to them. And everything you do to them. But Master, you have six wives. Why can't I have one for myself? You're not one of us. Therefore, you cannot have one of them. Yes, but I have one now. This one is mine. You'll never get her. You have failed us, Torgo. For this, you must die. Fail you? No. You have failed yourselves. You never kill them. I'll help them. You have failed, and you must die. Stop! What foolishness is this? Manos must be served! 
There you are. She is the one. She has upset all of our plans. This foolishness must stop. There has been enough trouble. Our purpose must be served. There will be no further insolence. But the child... We cannot kill a child. Yes, we can. You have caused enough trouble. As soon as we have disposed of Torgo, we shall take care of you. Your power fails you. I have no more fear. Seize her and prepare her for sacrifice. Find them. They must not escape. Find them. No, leave them alone. We cannot kill a child. Enough talk. Find them. Manos will be served. I can't believe you've let her watch Manos. <laughs> Is she scarred for life? Let's put it this way. When I parent are you? <laughs> when I wake her up, I vocalize the theme to wake her up to get oh, her ready to school. Oh, you're a terrible father. <laughs>